to Minter Dialogue, episode number 516. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in this wonderful network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Leonidas Johnson. Leonidas is a man of many talents. For starters, he's a speech-language pathologist. He's also a hip-hop artist, film writer, director, and actor. Further, he's also the host of the mightily popular and well-noted Informed Dissent podcast that digs in on many hot-button topics. He's also a writer on Substack and author of the new book, Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory, published by Salem Books in February 2023. In this conversation with Leonidas, we discuss his journey to launching Informed Dissent and his book, the role of art and music in his life and work, some of the key components and concepts in his book, such as identity, community, CRT, and hostile attribution bias, the state of society, and some of the bigger issues of our day. A fascinating conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider dropping your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Leonidas Johnson. Wow. I have been tracking you, listening to you. I feel like I know you. And you said yes to come on my podcast. I am so thrilled. I'm going to do some, uh, well, you know, some, this is, I don't know what it is. It's it's a fan praise, but love your work. (laughs) You're a podcaster. You're a hip hop artist. You're a film writer, director, actor, speech language pathologist and author raising victims the pernicious rise of critical race theory which came out in february 2023 mm-hmm. i'm interested to hear how you answer this question who is leonidas <laughs> well i am as jordan peterson would say i'm very high in trait openness so i <laughs> I'm one of those people that want to do everything. I don't always finish what I start, but I'm always trying to find something else that I can get my hands on. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm a speech language pathologist by trade. That's what I do. That's my day job. I work in a nursing home. I help people who have strokes and uh, with people with dementia. I help them try to get some of their independence back, help them learn to swallow again, help them learn to speak again, things like that. That's my day job. By night, I am an actor. I, I work in theater. I, I do the political commentary, which was never the plan. I never I'm I'm more artistic and more cre- more of a creative. And I, I was never interested in politics. So the the political thing kind of just came by accident. I kind of accidentally built a following on social media and people were interested in the things that I was saying, particularly around race. And so I have a, I have a started a podcast called Informed Descent. And so I do that weekly now and I've written a book. So I, I have all these things, all these things that I, I like to do and that I, that take my time. I, I coach soccer. Uh, I, I have four kids. I'm, I'm trying to think of everything <laughs> I'm involved in, but it gets, it gets, you should see my schedule. It's pretty crazy. Like I have everything color coded and it looks almost like, it looks like Skittles. That's the joke. <laughs> like my schedule looks like somebody just poured Skittles out on it because it's just, it, it's crazy, but it's, it's good stuff. It's good times. And I've been blessed with a bunch, a lot of opportunities to uh, have a platform and have my voice heard. So 
Uh, so I'm, I'm just plowing forward and going wherever it takes me. I love it. Well, before we were recording, I was saying how I felt like we had lots of little things in common. And now you yeah. just said you color code your bloody agenda. That's what I do too. <laughs> and it looks like to. skittles. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's important. I, I must I must qualify you as as a quintessential Renaissance man. You you really endeavor to do everything and that that idea. And, and it's not true that you don't finish stuff. You do stuff. I mean, you got your four kids and your family and you finished a book. You got your hip-hop uh, music that I've seen. So you you yeah. are really a doer as well. And I'm wondering to what extent your musical creative side has been helpful. I mean, if I think about a speech pathologist, I can't think of, I think, I don't think of that as a, a creative side. I think it's you know, there's a scientific side too, and the therapy side and the study and the medicine and all that. And then right. when you think about politics, hip hop, I mean, of course, if you're, uh, let's say you've got a big platform, you can talk, but to what extent has your humanities, your creative background informed your descent? Yeah, it's 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 difficult to say specifically how it's informed it. I think just having that background, I think more my psychology background, because I do have a bachelor's in psychology as well. And that interest in psychology and and how that applies to the arts, because that's what I typically if I'm if I'm doing an acting gig, I'm using psychology to really dig into the character's mind and figure out who this character is and how they tick and how they operate. And it's the same thing with politics. You know, you you have characters on the national stage who are behaving a certain way or you have these different groups that are behaving a certain way and you you see the psychology and the underlying essence of uh, uh, of humanity there and like how humans work how humans think and how different things operate and you can make certain judgments and see certain things coming before they actually happen so it's i think that's helped because you can understand how people operate and how people think and where ideas come from and the history of psychology, the history of human, of, of human nature. Uh, one of the things I say specifically about uh, the, the battle between individualism and collectivism, particularly when you talk about the history of communism and things like that, there's a lot of times the new, the new age communists, the, the people who think that communism has never been tried or socialism has never been tried. What one thing that they reject is the essence of human nature that the the idea of human nature doesn't change the specifics may change the details may change and how certain things are implemented but human nature itself doesn't change the underlying psychology doesn't change and so that's the reason that communism never works every time it's tried people try to implement it it never works because human nature never changes so when you have when you have that sort of understanding, it makes it easier to see those things, and you're less able to be manipulated by emotional reasoning or logical fallacies or different manipulative tactics that the media or politicians try to use to get people to capitulate. So I I would say it's more the psychological background that has influenced me the most, uh, because this influenced both the creative background or the creative stuff and the the political stuff. So. Well, Nifty, you know, when you wrote, uh, I, I, on your website anyway, you have a little piece when you say, uh, I don't believe our country can thrive if we don't see each other as fellow countrymen and don't raise our children to do the same. And I mm -hmm. follow on. 
quoting you, if we don't acknowledge some sort of shared values, shared national identity, and a shared sense of brotherhood, we will tear our nation apart with our own hands. I, 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 wanna, I was triggered by that, um, to use like a really cool <laughs> word. Because um, in France, we talk about fraternité, which uh, in France, uh, so fraternity, which is basically brotherhood. And, mm-hmm. and it, France is a proxy socialist bordering on communist kind of state. So that the word brotherhood at that level sort of, oh my gosh, really? Brotherhood? So, yeah, they, brotherhood in the sense of collective identity is not really what it's meant. It's, it's brotherhood in the sense that you have, uh, you, you see people as individuals, but you have a sense of responsibility to your community and a sense of shared values and a shared system of beliefs where you come together and you have this national identity. So it, it's the difference between if you know people have approached it and said like well individual if you have individualism then you can't have a sense of community but that's not true it's it's just the difference between saying we're going to be a a voluntary sort of collective group versus a force collective where we're going to say the government comes in is going to determine what our collective ideals are and what and what our identity is going to be. And if you oppose that, then you're going to be punished. Whereas in an individualist kind of uh, perspective, you're saying, okay, like I'm, I'm a unique individual. My identity as an individual is paramount. And like my, there's no collective identity that supersedes that, but we have a shared sense of, values and a shared sense of beliefs and we have we're going to come together as a unit and that makes us stronger but we're going to do that voluntarily and i'm going to reach out to you you're going to reach out to me and we're going to come together voluntarily in order to solve problems and that's that's so much better and you know i I think about the invisible hand specifically i think that's a good example of how free markets work because everybody's operating by their own self-interest technically, right? And what comes of that, everybody's making their own individual decisions and and operating in their own self-interest. And what ultimately results is something that's far more complex and far more superior than what any government or any centralized entity could possibly develop on their own, even imagine on their own. And so all that, all those, all those millions upon millions of interactions end up creating this collective sort of identity, this collective beast that nobody else could have even imagined, let alone implemented. And that's what I think about when when it comes to implementing ideals and coming together as a brotherhood and coming together as people who share a common foundation and a common a common system of beliefs and and unite together as a community. But the difference is whether it's voluntary or whether it's forced by the government. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The idea of, I, I, I've i written about this myself, about how this paradox of being an individual and yet needing the feeling to belong. And and so in, in some cases where you insist or impose a system, then the individual rejects it or says, whoa, what about me? And needs to exist within that forced community, communism. The other one says, well, I'm an individual. I recognize the individual. And then the individual says voluntarily, well, I'll join this community. I will live in Edward Scissorhands land, 
which is how the French always say, well, that's, oh, that's ridiculous. I'd hate that. The individual doesn't exist. But what they don't recognize is that the individual existed and and voluntarily chose that Edward Scissorhands land. Right. And, and that the community where critical race theory is the uh the the paramount ideology where it's taught in schools and you know children are infused with that if they want to go do that in a land of individualism that's fine um what when it becomes a problem and why it's a problem now is that people don't have a choice they can't decide where they go um if they kids stuck in a school where critical race theory is being infused and parents can't choose where to send their kids they can't they can't get away from it and that's a problem. And it's, it's this forced sense of identity and this forced community. And that's where we run into issues. So yeah, individualism is not isolation. And that's the way I try to explain it to people. We're not, it's not being isolated. It's it's You still have a sense of community and you still even have a sense of a collective identity in, in the sense of uh, uh, shared ideals and, and shared values. But you, the individual, the individual rights, and the individual identity is priority and it's it doesn't give way to the group collective and the individual can voluntarily sacrifice that for the group and for the greater good if that's what they want to do but it becomes a problem when it's forced and it never it never works out when it's forced and that's that's true for just about anything so i, I want to get back to that topic but let's say i want to circle back one second which is uh, really around how you got to, I would say, jump over the precipice and push into the kind of commentary and positions you've taken. The The, the observation I have is it feels like it's a risky thing to do, There's, especially in the United States. You're going against all sorts of popular uh, tendencies. It's an uphill battle. There's all sorts of risks of, you know, cancellation and all that. So I'm wondering about that moment that teetered you into it. And you said, all right, I got to dive. I got to do this. Yeah. I mean, people accuse me of being a grifter pretty, pretty often. And I always laugh because if I truly wanted to be a grifter, I would be pushing the other side of the issue. <laughs> I would be, I would be pushing racial victimhood and race hustling because that's far more lucrative than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Far, far safer too. But exactly. I, you know, people, people ask me this question pretty frequently and I, I've thought about it and it's not really, you can't really pinpoint a specific issue, a specific time or specific issue when you have that awakening where you're like, Oh, this is what I need to do, or or this is what's going to happen. But if I had to pick a time, I think it would have been around 2014, 2015, when um, around the time Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, when you had the Ferguson riots and, and the advent of Black Lives Matter really hit the scene, which like Black Lives Matter have been around for about a year or two already, but they really took hold after that. And what struck me the most, and I remember specifically, was the the blatant lies being told by the media with the hands up don't shoot and all the all the things that were ha that were surrounding the case uh they were lying about what happened with the police officer what happened with Michael Brown what happened after what happened before and they even after it was proven that he didn't have his hands up that he wasn't innocent and that there was no culpability on behalf of the police officer. They still continued to push the lies. Celebrities were pushing the lies. Politicians were pushing the lies. Nobody was uh, responding to the facts at all. Now, prior to that time, 
I was pretty apolitical. I, like I said, I'm, I'm a creative. I, I delved into the world of the arts and I wasn't really paying much attention to politics at all. Uh, so when that happened, I, I was mostly, I, I was in a position where I mostly trusted the media. I mostly trusted that they were telling us the truth and, or at least if they were wrong about something, it was unintentional. So that moment was very disenchanting for me because I recognized that they were intentionally pushing a narrative and not just intentionally pushing, pushing a dishonest narrative, but they were intentionally trying to drive division in, in disunity and cause harm. They were trying to cause riots and cause people to be upset and go out and destroy their communities. And I mean, it was, it was ridiculous what was going on then. And I couldn't believe that they were, they would intentionally do something like that. So I started looking into more things that the media was lying about. And it turned, turned out they were lying about quite a lot. (laughs) My, my naive nature about the media was exposed full fully at that point. And I'm pretty embarrassed to admit that, but so then I had some friends turn me on to Thomas Sowell. And from that point, it really just opened my eyes. And yeah, I started to think about things more deeply than I had before. Not just the specific politics of the time, but <clears throat> more broadly, like I just started to think about economics and you know, just the general way that the world operates and you know, specifically race issues, especially. Um but then I started looking at like Milton Friedman and and Ludwig von Mises and like all these all these guys F A Hayek, uh, all these libertarian sort of guys who who really pushed these ideologies that I hadn't really considered before and I hadn't really thought because again I I was I was in the art world and I wasn't really thinking about politics, uh, you know I didn't really care what was going on in the political world I thought about things sort of but I didn't think about things on a deep level because it didn't really concern me that much which is again is that naive nature my my young naive self <laughs> but we all so, had yeah, that once I once I yeah once I started really looking into things and started really doing my own research and really paying attention to what was going on uh I realized I had to be vocal about it and Again, I was just putting out my thoughts on social media. I wasn't really trying to do anything crazy. And I accidentally just, I, I had a couple tweets go viral and uh, accidentally started ha- building up a following on both Facebook and Twitter, ended up with over 100,000 fo- Twitter followers and had people ask me to start a podcast because they were really interested in what I was saying. Um so I did that and I had somebody approach me and had an agent approach me and asked me if I wanted to write a book uh, because I was things I was saying about critical race theory. I was saying them anyway. So might as well put it all in, into a back in white place, a book. Right. And, and put that out into the world. So like I said, I don't really, I haven't really pursued it uh, specifically, but it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, the truth, once you find out what the truth is, you have to put it out there and you, you know, you have to, you have to speak it. At least that's how I feel. So, so again, I want to get back to some of the things we were talking about before. But in your experience now, you've, you're you're obviously in a polemical situation, talking about things which uh, everybody is going to have a, an opinion, or you're going to have lots of detractors. I mean, the majority still thinks on the wrong side of things. And so I was wondering what you've learned. I mean, it's funny that you work as a speech pathologist, but how have you learned, what have you learned about managing conversations as you've come into this position? 
And, and specifically, how do you better manage when you're dealing with somebody who has an opinion on the other side of the border? It's very difficult. Uh, when you're dealing with such emotional issues, uh, it's very difficult to talk to people. Uh, you have to approach conversations with a certain level of empathy for the other, other side. And you know, otherwise, they're going to completely shut down on you. And if they feel like they're not, that you, you're approaching the conversation already with your feet you know, rooted in the ground and you're not going to go anywhere and you're already prejudging them, they're going to shut down on you. So you have to, ha you have to approach it with a certain level of that you understand where they're coming from, or you understand what the argument is being made. Now you get a lot of people who are coming at you with bad faith and that's just not, it's, it's not going to matter what you say or what you do. They're just trying to make you look bad. <laughs> and those conversations are just not fruitful and uh, it's, it's better to just walk away from those. But for people who are legitimately interested in having a conversation, um, it, I, it's a still man strategy. You have to be able to articulate their argument at least as well as they do. If you, if you can do it better than they can, then even better. But you have to understand their argument as well as they do so that you can spit it back to them in a way that they would agree with. That way you're both working on the same level and you understand each other and then you can, then you can talk. Because if you don't understand the, if you don't understand their argument, then you can't, you can't criticize it. It makes it very difficult and they're not going to listen to you if you don't understand it. Now, what I've run into a lot of times, uh, again, it's the, it, it's hard because a lot of people approach these things in bad faith. Um, but what I run into a lot of times, particularly with critical race theory is people misrepresent the things that you're saying, or they misrepresent your understanding of the argument. Like I understand critical race theory very well. I've researched it extensively. I know what the founders have said. Um, I know what the proponents have said and what they believe. And I can articulate that back to people. But what I get a lot of times is that I don't understand critical race theory. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, it's only in law schools, whatever, the, the, <laughs> the normal attacks that you normally get. So those things are difficult and trying to navigate those bad faith waters and trying to find people who actually want to have a conversation is it's it's challenging. But when you do and and when you do find somebody that wants to talk again, it, it's, it comes down to just having that level of empathy for where they're coming from and then understanding what the argument is. And, and then you can go from there. One of the things I really enjoyed in your book was listening to you as a black man talk about these topics and talking about the things that weren't so clear. For example, you, you mentioned the sort of fluidity of how critical race theory is and isn't defined and so it becomes yeah. sort of obscure and so no one actually is fog we're all fog bombed by what it is and if you're a white guy you certainly can't understand it because you know who are you right in in the in in what you're saying there are two things that strike me one is the issue of facts so you do your research you you understand you've done your reading you understand some facts but facts don't play well in an emotional space. So how do yeah. you conjure up a conversation when facts get sort of waylaid or pushed aside by the emotions that are riding in us? Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. 
we host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you wanna learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. Yeah, I yeah, I haven't quite figured that out yet, honestly, because I try to I try to just barrage, you know, send a barrage of facts and logic and it's just a lot of times people are just impervious to it when they're when they're dealing in that emotional space and dealing with that emotional reasoning. Uh, it's very difficult to break through and and reach those kind of people. And I understand. I mean, if you if you truly believe in a a deep seated conspiracy theory, like you truly believe, let's use the Earth is flat for instance. Mm-hmm. So if you truly you truly believe that the earth is flat and you believe it in your heart and is fundamental to who you are, that the earth is flat. You, no matter what anybody tells you, they can show you any evidence. They, they can give you any fact and you're going to reject it. You're going to say that that's just further evidence that the earth is flat. It's further evidence of the conspiracy. You know, it's like you show, show them pictures from space that the earth is a globe and they'll tell you that that's just, that's just part of the conspiracy to get you to believe that the earth is a globe. Right. So it's this constant rejection of reality and everything that even contradicts it, it serves as evidence to support it. And critical race theory is a lot like that. It's when people believe that racism is interwoven into the fabric of our society, that it's completely endemic in our culture. It's just hidden. You can't see it, right? Only you have to have a PhD in critical studies to, to see it. But if they truly believe that, it's not really going to matter what you say or how how many facts that you give them or any evidence you provide because they're just going to tell you that like well that's just evidence that the white white supremacy is trying to shield the racism it's trying to shield the, the real truth and i've had people tell me that before i've showed people statistics on police shootings and and showed them that their presuppositions about police shootings were wrong because look here's the statistics and they tell me that the statistics themselves are racist. So <laughs> like, how do you even get through if if you if I can't show you the facts and I can't show you evidence, then what will it take to convince you that you're wrong? And the answer is nothing. They not it has to be an internal shift. There has to be an internal paradigm shift where they start to question the reality. It's it's almost like it's almost like being in a cult, right? Like how do you deal with somebody who is completely enveloped in a cult? You have to get them to question their own reality. They have to question what's going on and what they what they've accepted as as reality and what they have accepted as truth. If you can't get them to question that, then no matter what you say or what what evidence you give them, they're just going to be suspicious of it and they're going to think that you're trying to get one over on them or something and take them away from the real truth. So it's, it's like, uh, it's Plato's allegory of the cave, right? It's, it's trying to convince the people that the shadows on the walls are just shadows on the wall. They're not going to believe you until they see the sunlight. It's funny. Um, 
at some level, I I feel like, and and it's sort of on the right as well, uh, becoming uh, on the right. But it's a very existential issue, and uh, let's say CRT or or racial issues are, are existential have become existential. But I I would subscribe subscribe to the idea that a lot of these causes, whether it's BLM or the global warming or Ukraine, hashtag Ukraine, these types of causes are existential. And I attach so much importance to them that they are me, that the cause is me, mm. and that I'm not aware of who I really am, but I I, I extrapolate or is I impose myself into this other cause. And if you touch that cause, then you are hurting me. Right. That is a that is a great point. And I think uh I, I think it's spot on. I there's something that I've I've actually postulated as well in the past that and I've I've approached it from more a more religious standpoint where you know people have taken this sort of idea, this ideology, and they've used it to replace religion. So it has mm -hmm. become their religion. And yeah, and you're absolutely right. So they they see themselves in it. And so it becomes this internal thing for them. It, it gives them mean, meaning and purpose and identity. And you can't tease the two apart. So if you, yeah, if you do attack the ideology or you attack the certain perspective, then yeah, you they think that you're attacking them. Uh, a good allegory, I think, comes from Ken Minogue, and I talk about this in the book, but he 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 told an allegory about uh, St. George the Dragon Slayer. And oh, I love this into, one. Yeah. Going into retirement, right? And so St. George is this, he's this grand dragon slayer. He slays all the dragons in the land, and he's this big hero, and everybody in the village loves him, and he's amazing. And his entire identity, his whole life has been wrapped up in dragon slaying. And so, but he's now there's no more dragons to slay and he can go into retirement and relax. But what happens is he starts to have a, that identity crisis and he starts to lose him, lose his sense of self and lose his sense of meaning and purpose because he's, he doesn't have any dragons to slay. So suddenly he looks out of the window and what does he see? There's, there's a dragon. Amazing. It's a miracle. So he grabs his dragon slings, his sword, his, his shield, all of his, whatever equipment dragon slayers have. <laughs> runs outside and slays the dragon and suddenly there's dragons everywhere there's dragons that bark there's dragons that quack there, there's dragons that proclaim themselves to be villagers even and he slays them all and eventually he's seen swinging his sword at thin air proclaiming it to be the fiercest dragon of them all and i love that allegory i love it because it really pinpoints the, the issue of what happens when people get their identity so deeply wrapped up in this in these political ideologies because they identify so deeply with being a dragon slayer that well, well what do you do when there are no more dragons to slay and the only option is to either go crazy and have an identity crisis and and just blow up or to actually create dragons and see them where they don't exist and critical race theory specifically is very much that kind of thing where and they say they say the founders say specifically that they felt the civil rights movement had stalled out and that it didn't accomplish what it set out to do and that any progress all the racial progress that we've made in this country is an illusion 
It's it's because racism has been driven underground and it's been hidden into our institutions. And so what they're saying, what they're essentially saying is that they didn't want to give up the identity of dragon slaying. And so there's these hidden dragons now that we must go slay. And only you can't see them. You can't see, you can't see unless you have a super a super spy decoder ring or the special Gnostic, you know, Gnostic identity, then you can't see the dragons. So you'll just have to rely on us, the true dragon slayers, and we'll tell you where they are. And you just be an ally. You just shut up over there and be an ally and let us go slay the dragons. And so that's very much what it is. And if you criticize that, if you if you try to push back against it, they get very upset and they lash out because you're not just attacking the ideology, you're attacking their very identity of who they are. So I think you're spot on there. And that's that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. It's interesting. So listening to you, uh, Leonidas, I, I like to connect dots and and um, so I know you are a religious man, and I appreciated the way you positioned it in the book. You, you said you don't have to be religious to read this, and I totally didn't feel like right. I was outed. There's another book I was reading about how to have difficult conversations, and they and they they use lots of the different parables and and stories within the Bible to talk about how we should be. And and you you talk about, and I feel very not agnostic about the idea of the religion, but the idea of being grateful uh, as mm-hmm. as a as a principle. So the dragons are invisible. At some level, I would say God is invisible too. It's a matter of faith. And it feels like we need faith in our lives. And and is, is religion the only faith that we can have? And if it's not, then is dragons the only alternative that we can have? It's an interesting question because it feels like if if you're going to have meaning and purpose in your life, there has to be something bigger than yourself, right? There, you have to have some sense that you're living for something other than yourself. Otherwise, you fall into nihilism and it becomes this sense that life doesn't really matter um, and it's hard to find any real purpose at least that's my sense as a, I mean, I, like you said, I'm a religious person. So it's, it's hard for me to think of it outside of that framework, but I, the sense of it to me is that if you don't have this idea that some, that you're living for something bigger than yourself, then the only other option is that you're living a very selfish, self-centered, uh, temporary existence that doesn't really matter. And so you're living very much in the moment. So yeah, I think people that are searching for meaning and searching for purpose, they have to find it. If they're not going to find it in religion, they have to create something bigger. And some, and a lot of people find that in social justice. They find that in this sense that I'm fighting for either the planet in climate change, or I'm fighting for these oppressed groups in racism or sexism or injustices. Yeah. And, and they find that identity in that religion and, and it operates very much like an extremist religion. Uh, I think like radical Islam, it, it operates very similar to that where you have the high priest that pass down the the holy dogma and that nobody's allowed to challenge nobody's allowed to question it you just you have to accept it as 
incontrovertible truth. And then you have to operate as an evangelist. You have to go out and you have to evangelize, you have to proselytize, and you have to try to convert people to the religion. And if they don't convert, then you have to punish them. You have to punish the heretics, punish the blasphemers, uh, make an example of them. So you become sort of, you become an evangelizer and an inquisitor both. You're sent out to go find the heretics, root them out, try to convert them. If you can't, then you punish them because they're perpetuating the evil, the darkness, the sin in this society, and they and the sin must be expunged. So you have a lot of this, this sense of that you need to create a more pure, more, more religious, more, uh, I was just going to say religious, I guess, a more righteous, more holy society and we do that by purging the heretics and the blasphemers and this in the sin the sinners right and get getting rid of that so it, it very much operates like an extremist religion and um i made that point many times and people get upset about it but you know one more point i would make about it is that yeah one of the things in the united states is we have the first amendment which it, which it has an establishment clause and what it what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to separate church and state and make it so that the government can't institute a national religion. And so the government cannot come out and say, you have to worship this religion. You have to do this and go to this church and read this Bible. You can't, the government can't do that. But what we have here is we have a sort of religion that's an unofficial religion. It's not officially stated religion, but the state is imposing religious ideology on citizens. It's violating the First Amendment. It's violating the Establishment Clause by forcing everybody to adhere to these religious beliefs and bow to these gods and worship these idols. And But it's, it finds the loophole because it's not a, it's not technically a religion, but a I've made the point many times that it operates exactly like a religion, and that's the reason that the Establishment Clause was created for that very thing. So it's it's not just religious ideals that cause these problems, but it's that dogmatic ideology that we're forcing people to believe these things and forcing people to adhere to these things, um, whether they believe them or not. And it's so it's it's a problem. It certainly is. I, I, I'm mixing a couple of thoughts. One of them is this notion of the individual who goes after a new religion and then creates an identity, identity politics, around this cause or this idea. And, uh, and, and yet I feel underneath that the, the, the real premise is know thyself first and then go and establish your identity. Don't go and borrow the identity whatever that is out there, that cause, and then create it. And then just tying it back into your other premise about like creating a nationhood, something we all believe in together. We have this massive number of individuals now that can, everyone can get a Twitter feed and everyone's got a, uh, you know, some kind of soapbox or ability to, to blow their, their smoke. And they, they all feel like they need to exist and everybody is important. And because uh, we only have a few children now, we don't have 10. I mean, you have four, thank you. Yeah. Yet, um, <laughs> you know, for generally it's a lot less. And and yeah. the, the, there's there's more value, more value given to the individual, identity politics, the individuals trying to push themselves out. How do we go about creating some shared nationhood 
when that's the situation. Because if you will, if I read it by another way, I think, well, if the government's pushing out this ideology, that's their shared, you know, quote unquote, that's their, the shared value I want everybody to have. So they're, they're, and you talked about mixing thoughts. I have a, I have a couple of thoughts about that. The, the, the first thing I would say uh, is it's, it's interesting the way this manifests in the first place. Uh, you have these sort of collective identities you, you talked about identity politics and you think about like the lgbt community uh in like in, on the black you know, as far as race side you have black people who identify as fba which is foundational black americans or ados african descendants of slaves um so what you have you have these sort of umbrella groups that people collectively identify with and then what happens is people feel like those groups don't perfectly represent them. And so they go off and they form a, another splintered group and they, and they say, we're going to identify as this instead because that doesn't perfectly represent it. Like Bi BIPOC is a good example. People get upset about the, which I don't even know what it stands for by the black and people of color people of back indigenous people of color, <laughs> but people get upset about that because they feel it's too inclusive. So all of this talk about inclusion and we need to be more inclusive. People get upset if things are, if these groups are too inclusive. And so they need new groups and they need new flags. <laughs> they need all of it. I think the LGBT, uh, I, I think they're, they're up to like 20 some flags now. Like it's, it's so like all these people, they want, they, they want to, they want to be identified as an individual or as close to as individual as possible, but they also want that collective identity, which I always joke. And I say, if we keep splintering these groups, they're eventually going to make it to where we want them to be, which is individualism. <laughs> like, yeah, to a the bunch individual, of... They're going to recognize that they're a unique individual. But uh, as far as the question of uh, uh, the shared ideals and values, um, I, I think it has to be something broader and something universal. Uh, and you have to, again, it's, it's the psychology and, and digging into what is humanity and, and why certain countries have collapsed and why certain countries have excelled and what made America specifically so special um, and what made it so, what, why well, we talk about slavery was why, why it was so remarkable that slavery was abolished is because we had these shared ideals in the country of liberty and that the idea that all men are created equal and, you know, you should have equal representation under the law, the neutral, neutral principles of constitutional law, and that the constitution was the law of the land and that we needed limited government and, and individual liberty was paramount. All of, all of these foundational ideals of our country were what made the country so successful and why we were able to overcome the obstacles that we, that we were. And so I think that those shared ideals and those that sense of being a part of a country that has those ideals, I think that's where that that shared that that shared sense of uh, uh, principles and ideals would come from, and why that would be why that would stick together. I I think when it's more dogmatic and where it's more 
uh, focused on political ideology and in the person's personal politics, that's when you get into trouble. It's like when I'm if I'm going to say that you have to read the Bible five times a day in order to share my ideals, that's obviously a problem. <laughs> like that's not we can't have shared ideals based on those personal opinions. But on a more broader sense, uh, everybody should have individual liberty. Uh, I think people can agree with that, and we can find common ground on those. And so. That's I, I think just those broad ideas that most people would agree with. But unfortunately, we are at a point where uh, most people don't agree with those things anymore, and at least not in this country. And, you know, critical. I wrote about critical race theory. Critical race theory is very hostile to the idea of liberty and the idea of free speech and the idea of neutral principles of constitutional law. They say that it's explicitly that they think those things are rooted in white supremacy. <laughs> So, so it's challenging. It is challenging when you have a group of people who are rejecting the foundational ideals of the country and they want to completely rework the entire system, the entire foundation of our country and rebuild it into some sort of communist utopia. Uh, I don't see sharing ideals with those kind of people. And I'm not sure how we, I'm not sure how we rectify that other than finding people who we do share ideals with and continue to push forward and promote the promote the foundations that uh you know made our country what it is in the first place well you know you mentioned the idea of shared history uh where now history is no longer taught at schools at least not in the old-fashioned ways where you have dates and wars and battles we it's the history of this portion of a of a society and and that's what counts and it changes. There's no. There's no more shared notion of history, and so we don't share the facts. We don't share the history, and it becomes very difficult. I wanted to get back to something you said at the very beginning, Leonard, just before I I close because I know your time is short. Um, oh, you're fine. You talked about openness as well. Uh, at least, at least, you want to have empathy to listen to the other person. Mm. How do you broker having an opinion, a strong opinion, and wanting to listen to the other person? Because at some level, my feeling is, and I, I, I'm not strident on any particular point. I like to build bridges. And it, it is my feeling that it's difficult to, A, have a strong opinion, and yet be open to listening and possibly accepting the other person's opinion. When there's only emotions that come through it, so you're, you end up, being the kind of person they are too, because they're not listening to you. You go into it factually. They come into it emotionally and neither the two should cross. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not a good answer for that. And I'm not the, I'm not going to pretend that I'm perfect with this either. Nobody you know, is. When you have strong opinions, you want to express them strongly and that's just natural human nature. You think that you're right and you want to make sure that you get that across. It's it, The atmosphere is very toxic at the moment, particularly with social media, because it's more of a gotcha culture. It's more of people trying to catch you and catch you off guard and catch, catch you in a Right. They misrepresent you and they make you look bad. They and So it, it becomes less about finding common ground and, you know, figuring out solutions than it is, you know, just dominating the person that you're talking to or, or debating. And yeah, I think about Bethany Mandel. I don't know if you 
saw that conversation with Brianna Joy Gray, where uh, she was asked to define the word woke. And she had a she, she had a sort of a brain fart where she wasn't able to give a concise definition. She she gave a definition later, but she wasn't able to give a concise definition in the moment. She was she kind of fumbled. And the response to that was, ah, look, this person doesn't even know how to define the word woke. So it's just ridiculous. And it went viral and people were mocking her and it was, it was, it was terrible. So instead of having a conversation and really trying to, you know, talk about what woke means and and how it manifests, it became more about ad hominem and how, how to attack her and discredit her argument. So there's it it's a lot of that. When people ask to debate and they want to debate, then it's it's more about like trying to get you know paint you in a certain light and again make you make you look bad so it's it's difficult it's it's hard but again i i just go back to that idea where you you kind of gauge where people are and what they what their intentions are and whether they actually want to have a conversation but i i think that you still you still have to know what their argument is and what where they're coming from fundamentally in order to criticize it even if they're not giving you any level of empathy or not listening to your argument or taking any time to understand your argument you still have to understand what their argument is in order to properly approach it and it's particularly when it comes to social media i always tell people that a lot of times the people that i'm talking to i'm not actually talking to i'm talking to the people who are reading the conversation the people who are watching the video the people who are on the fence that may not be engaging in the dialogue but they're seeing it and maybe i can influence them the person i'm talking to they're they they've dug their heels in and they're just they're they're bad faith dishonest and and I'm not going to reach them, but it's the other people who are paying attention. The other people who are watching, those are the people I'm trying to reach. So I, I would just say, just put the truth out there the best that you can uh, understand the argument from all sides is the best that you can and just speak the truth. Cause uh, a lot of times people are scared to do that. And we just can't, we can't afford to be, we can't afford to be frightened at this point. And you have to speak the truth. That comes out in the way you speak, Leonardison. And uh, I, I sense that sense of gratefulness that you talk about. It, it, there's a sort of um, an implicit optimism uh, and hopefulness all the same within what you're doing. And maybe you can ascribe that to religion, but it seems to be within your soul. Uh, when you talk about attempting to reach the, the readers as opposed to the, the individual you're, you're debating with, I was wondering for raising victims, who's your reader and who who are you aiming for? What was in your mind as you wrote that book? Is the people who may not who may want to fight against critical race theory but aren't sure. And you know, they're not quite sure what critical race theory is, maybe not sure how it operates. Not, you know, because a lot of times the manipulation happens on the surface. You know, people hear words, hear phrases like Black Lives Matter. They hear anti-racism. Those things sound good. Equity is another one. Sounds good. It sounds like things that you should support or that you would support if you want to be a good person. And a lot of people do want to be a good, a, a good person. They want to be compassionate and they want to be empathetic. America has had a history of racial oppression. So these are very, it comes from a very real place where people were trying to be supportive and they want to uh, be open to 
correcting any wrongs if there is or or fighting injustice and that's admirable but what's happening is they're being manipulated by th these bad actors who are using their compassion against them so my book is to expose that to expose how that's happening and how people are being manipulated by words like diversity equity and inclusion anti-racism black lives matter and you pick one culturally culturally responsive teaching whatever and how it's operating and and debunking the arguments, debunking the basic arguments. I'm trying to give people weapons, give them tools to fight back against it so they can see the manipulation, see how it operates, and then push back against it and be able to confidently approach it. And then also I, it's for people who, uh, who want to move into a, a colorblind society and want to move into a post-racial society and how we can do that and, and hopefully inspire them to to step up because there's strength in numbers and the more people we have that stand up and speak the truth and hold on to that idea and hold on to those shared values. There's that, there's that phrase again. And then, you know, the better chance we have to get through this and, and move into a better place as a country and as a society, as Western culture as a whole. So. Well, in, in a parting thought, really, I mean, your book gave lots of really interesting facts. I was uh, picked up one about, how they were black slave owners. I had really no mm. concept of that. 171 in South Carolina, 6,000 roughly in total. So that was, I, there's a couple of facts that that, uh, that uh, sat out for me. For me, in the end of the day, you know, I, I love Thomas Sowell. I, I, I enjoy reading perspectives like that. It, it strikes me that you, you have a, a critical role, not to use the word critical in the wrong way, but... <laughs> Because at the end of the day, if if a white guy like me is the one who critiques critical race theory, it, there's no way. Society, media, Twitter, whatever, will just go out. And not that I, I need to, or that's not my thing. But in the end of the day, it's much better to come from within, per se, and talk about it. And for example, in the Muslim religion, the extremism, it should be the Muslims who are critiquing the extremism within their religion or whatever the situation is. If it's from within, it's so much stronger to cure right. the situation than if it comes from without, because then I get attacked or, you know, it's you're the problem and you're attacking me. Then my identity is a, is under a siege. My existence is at th threatened and therefore I will attack and defend, even if I'm not supposed to, or I shouldn't feel like it. Yeah, you're right. And it's unfortunate that the, it is that way, but they build up a, a sort of shield. And uh, again, the operation of the ideology is that everything is racism. Everything is imbibed with white supremacy. So the way that they built that is that means that any criticism of critical race theory is evidence of white supremacy by trying to tear trying to perpetuate the white supremacist system so yeah for a white person to critics criticize critical race theory which uh, i'm not saying white people should not do that i think that they should but what critical race theorists advocates will say is that they're just racist and they want to perpetuate white supremacy and those are the common attacks and it, it's just that's the way that the ideology operates but they still do that to me, but you're yeah. right that I have a, <laughs> I, I have a, uh, I have a little bit better. I mean, a little bit better position to do that on, and it's unfortunate, but they, it's not as easy to attack me because, because my skin is brown and 
they have to work harder to do it and say that I have internalized white supremacy or <laughs> I, I just want to be white, whatever, whatever, all these. Yeah, all the, these the, the expression guys. I was here, I've always heard is coconut. Coconut. Right? That's a new one. I haven't, I hadn't heard that. Brown on the outside, it. white on the inside. <laughs> Oreo is, yeah, Oreos. I've oh, heard that there one. you go. Um, lots of, lots of great or, expressions. Yeah. Uncle Tom is the big one. I get that. Oh one boy. Lot, but which is, which is hilarious because uncle Tom is the hero of that novel. So I'm, I'm kind of proud of that title because I, who wouldn't want to be uncle Tom? He's the, he's the hero. He's the, he's somebody that you should aspire to like, at least on, on, the, on a character level. But yeah, I mean, those kind of attacks are, are ridiculous, but it's just, it, it becomes a situation where it, you, you just can't worry yourself about what how they're going to respond because of course they're going to shriek and cry and yell when you attack their ideology because they don't want it to be criticized. They don't want it to go away. So uh, you just have to, again, you just have to be armed with facts. You have to be armed with uh, the truth and and know what you're talking about because um, they, they are waiting to pounce. They're waiting to come after you and looking for weakness and looking for any place there they can expose you and, and try to discredit your argument. So just know your stuff, know what you're talking about and speak the truth. That's my, that's my philosophy. I love it. So Leonidas, my, my approach is, um, is to, in this sort of, of space is, is not to attack their ideology, but to in, exhort them to think more about who they truly are and what is actually more important than little, my little pinky that is a little bit bent and, and get bigger and be more grateful for the life that we have. Leonidas, yeah. a message that you carry, uh, you write in your book that this is a message that still works if you're an atheist. Amen to that. Uh, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um, how Thank can you. people, what are the ways that people can get in touch with you, follow your work? What's your best, uh, give out your um, the best URLs. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Leonidas Johnson, uh, L-E-O-N-Y-D-U-S Johnson. And you can follow me on Facebook, the same handle. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. You can find me on there. And I have a podcast. It's called Informed Dissent. It's Dissent. A lot of people get confused sometimes. I was trying to be clever. <laughs> Informed Dissent. And yeah, the book is called Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory. And you can find that at any bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible, if you do audio books. And yeah, so. I, l I listened to it on audio. It wasn't you speaking. I was wondering. No, yeah, no, he did a I good was, job. Yeah, yeah he did. I was wondering <laughs> if, did you have a, a piece in, in selecting him with uh, with the Audible? I didn't. No, I didn't. They, they, uh, at Blackstone Publishing, I believe it was, they, they assigned, they assigned it, but he did a great job. So I was happy with it. That's cool. Leonidas, thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer.
a convinced man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust is a reason. Still, I won't tell the lie. I sit here passively, hope for your respect, anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying. I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. Convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competitions innate. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. Despite revenges and struggle with deceit. Challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man. In my lines, I'm a convinced man. Here in these confines, a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man. Me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman.
Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.